Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Mita Betty. Mita, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate you being here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I live in the beautiful city of Sydney. Um, sunny weather, nine months in the year, beautiful beaches and a great atmosphere. So I'm very lucky to have grown up here. Um, my parents sort of migrated here about 35 years ago from India. And I grew up um, in Sydney from kindergarten. And my, my family's background, I guess, if anyone knows about the Indian caste system is my father comes from a, a, a sort of a clan in India that are the warriors and my mother comes from a clan which are the tradesmen or the business people that were lived on the Silk Route. So they've been doing business for thousands of years. So genetically, I'm sort of a business warrior, if, <laughs> if we call it that way. Um, I'm also a mother of two beautiful children, um, uh, a five-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl. And um, sort of, uh, I, I grew up in a part of Sydney, which um, a lot of migrants live in, and I went to a public school. And then I decided to do engineering, uh, software engineering, about 20 plus years ago. And I was 10% of the cohort of girls that ended up doing software engineering in those days. And then I decided I would be a developer, an actual coder in, in amongst teams of um, predominantly or mostly or even the only girl at many times. And I ended up doing that for about, I'd say, eight or nine years in different organizations, um, a lot in financial services, in um, software services companies, both on the consulting side and the client side. And I really enjoyed doing that. And I think um, being the only girl a lot of times on the floor of large software shops was very interesting. I got to uh, be the soft side of the software business, um, really have discussions with business. What were the problems we were solving? You know, technology for the sake of technology didn't really enamor me. I was like, what is this delivering? I would challenge the boys on a lot of days. I became very good friends with them. Um, I also would translate a lot of the gibberish to the business. And I found myself always toggling in between um, technology and business. And I really enjoyed that because it gave me a lot of purpose in what I was doing. Um, were we delivering the right outcomes? Were we delivering the right estimates? And all of that became really important to me. So that made me move into my second avatar from my engineering days. And I said, hey, I really enjoy this business. And my mom had, had, had you know, I had grown up in a business where she ran a fashion business as well. So I decided to quit work after nine years and go and do um, an MBA. How cliche is that? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I sort of quit work for a year. Um, and went against a lot of my friends' advice. Uh, you've got a good life in Australia. Why would you go overseas and um, do go work hard for a year? And But that was a year that really um, challenged me and invigorated a lot of 
what I wanted to do, how to change the world, all these, all the bubbles, a bubble that an MBA lives in. I also ended up meeting my better half there, my husband. Mm. Um, so it was a big year for me. And it was also the year of the GFC. So 2009. And I graduated at a time when um, I was learning a lot and I was watching the world and its markets really sort of collapse in a way. I mean, so were they in their recovery then or was it, was it actually, I mean, was it, it kind was of at the trough? in the middle of it. So yeah. in that year when I graduated, um, most people had retracted their offers. Most people had, uh, you know, where, where a company would come and give 15 offers, they were just giving two or three. And mm. it, was, it was a tough year to graduate in, but it made everyone tougher, I guess. Everyone walked out with a job, yeah. maybe not the one they wanted, wow or maybe not a career they were looking for as um, they went in, but it, it built a lot of muscle. It built a lot of fundamental, what did I learn? How can I use this rather than he, here's a nice college degree and let me just walk into the next cushy job style. So it was really So where good. did you land from your, uh, where, did, where did you do your MBA study? So this is interesting. I decided to go back to India um, to do an MBA, which was quite a um, different way to look at it. I wanted to be in a very hyper Asia, Asia was booming, India mm -hmm. as well, and it was a very high entrepreneurial environment and very high activity. And so I said, look, I've always lived in Australia. Um, I've done all my education here and it's a good chance to challenge myself living overseas as well as learning um, business and trade from a different perspective at a different pace, at a different scale, I would sure. say. And so I ended up going to a school in India which was jointly started by Wharton and Kellogg. So it was a business school that started, uh, that has most of its teachers coming from Wharton and Kellogg. And so, but it, it was set in the Indian setting. So it was a very interesting year for me. And it was a one year condensed course. So I had a less of a jump out of working. Right. In a way. Now, now Wharton is, is connected to University of Pennsylvania, correct? Yes, exactly. And exactly. Kellogg is, is it Michigan? Uh, Northwestern, I think. Oh, Northwestern, okay. So, I mean, these are two highly prestigious schools in the States that, that you just connected there. And yeah. I mean, business schools. And so when you, when you stepped out, were you thinking when you went to get your MBA, were you thinking the entrepreneurial track or were you thinking kind of corporate track or what was on your mind? Um, I think... I went in with a quite a blank slate, unlike a lot of my cohort. Um, I went in because I just wanted to learn. I wanted to learn new things. And I ended up majoring in something completely different to what I thought I'd go in and major. I thought I'd go in and major in finance because mm -hmm. I had nine years of financial industry experience. I ended up majoring in strategy and marketing. I really fell in love with um, marketing because I felt like it brought behavior and economics and why people do things and how it ties into um, business. And I found it very strategic and very um, sort of bringing the soft and number side together. So after an MBA, I joined a company called International Business Machines or yeah. more friendly known as IBM. IBM. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. Um, when I want to avoid telling people I work there, I always use the longer name and they're like, oh, okay, sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> so I, I um, joined the international consulting cohort where we had a global team jumping around the world uh, in banking um, projects, large banking projects and working through 
sort of the sales, the deals, $100 million style deals. And I sort of said, okay, this is not necessarily what I'm passionate about. So then I jumped out of that, joining one of the largest corporates and, you know, learned a lot there. And then I said, I need to do something of my own. So then I jumped in and did, started my own e-commerce business in India at that time. And this is where my background growing up in my mother's business in fashion, I've started a B2C fashion business in a very hot e-commerce market. And this is where I got my real MBA. <laughs> so exactly. I actually had to unlearn everything I did learn in big corporate speak being sort of an MBA is really designed for joining a large corporate in mm -hmm. mid management. And it, when you're starting your own business in your own garage, a lot of that theory doesn't hold, although the, all the fundamentals I think still hold. So I had to really practice and look at the fundamentals of what I had learned, but really not get wedded to some of the cases of, you know, Northwest airlines or this right. was a small operation. So I joined that and that was an amazing experience of a year and a half where I got to really be an entrepreneur from scratch, like create value from scratch uh, create my first customers, supply chains. In a, in India, having to work with regulatory authorities for payments and banking accounts and getting income tax clearances. And it was a whole new world of opening a business, basically. Mm. And I mean, just I would imagine the bureaucracy uh, yeah, is absolutely. unparalleled. And even depending on where you are in the country, there are different rules and, and different absolutely. ways of and, navigating and maneuvering. So... And absolutely, remembering that I'd never lived there um, and I had grown up predominantly um, in Australia, completely through the Australian system and never faced a bureaucracy or a system that was very different. Uh, I would say there's different rules of the game and different yeah. um, levers and it's not good or bad. I, I just think you, you have to have grown up in it to understand like how it works and you can't work the Indian system with the Australian rules just as right. you couldn't do vice versa. So it was amazing. It was an amazing um, opportunity to be humbled and go, okay, this is, you can't, you can be, you know, idealistic in the way you're trying to get payments happening here, but it's very different. You're going to have to learn to work with the system and it does work, but you've got to go with the tide. <laughs> So you, you kind of stepped out of your MBA, you went to work with IBM for a while, you started your e-commerce business and then transitioned to, I mean, walk us through the transition to what you're doing today. Yeah, perfect. So this was all in India. So I ended up, um, I went for a year to do an MBA because I met my better half there. I ended up staying there. And so all of this happened working in IBM, having my own startup while I was in India. And then me and my husband said, look, um, you know, it was time to start a family and we needed to be close to, you know, parents and grandparents to really have that support. And so we decided to shut everything and it was a big move. Um, both of us had careers uh, in India and we said, okay, well, for the long haul, we're probably a good time to move now back to Sydney. So I moved back to Sydney and um, that's sort of when I sort of hit the Sydney um, job market took a job because we needed to pay rent. And I mm -hmm. said, look, I will walk into what is, whatever is the easiest. Now is not a good time to start another business Yeah, um, because we were both settling into a new economy and, 
you know, getting our friends and our family and all our routine sorted. And I also was like pregnant with um, Sophia at that time. And so after Sophia was born, um, I was heading back into a big bank here in Sydney uh, after maternity uh, in, a, in a senior role. And a little a recruiter um, knocked on my shoulders and said, hey, Mita, there's a small company up the road. They, they were, we were probably the size of this room that I'm just, this meeting room. And I think you should go and meet them. And I said, look, I've just had a, my first baby. <laughs> I'm a first time mom. Now is not a good time to go and meet a startup. I'm really just looking forward to heading back to work and, uh, you know, just settling in. I was nervous going back to work as a mom. He said, oh, no, no, just go and meet the team. So I went and met. I walked home and Jacob, my husband, said, oh, what happened? And I said, oh, look, I met this little startup and there's six or seven people, um, eight people maybe at the time, and they have an amazing proposition and everything is a little bit broken. And it's sort of that perfect middle between having my own business and doing it alone, but also having a team and sort of, and I said, but I'm not going to take the offer. It's a 30% pay cut from the banking job and Sophia's too young. And Jacob um, actually said, look, I haven't seen your eyes light up in a long time. So how about you go and take the job and you do this and we'll work Sophia out. And um, look, if it doesn't work out, uh, you go back to the corporate career because you have about 12 years of experience in that and a lot of um, people that back you and your previous bosses. So I ended up taking the job and, you know, um, ended up doing just about everything in the company, although my role was product manager. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing sales and pre-sales and onboarding and business analysis and CTO roles and, you know, just about everything. And I was really loving it. And one thing led to an, uh, the next and I ended up becoming a key partner in the company, taking a share, a large share of the company, becoming the CEO. And yeah, sort of, it became, became part of me, you know, and I've landed up here. So what was sort of just a, let's, let's try something out. Um, ended up being sort of another baby that I have now. <laughs> Yeah, and now you have three. That's exactly right. So walk us through the the initial, um, I guess, business plan or idea of the startup versus what it looks like now. What's been the transition, or has yeah. it been pretty pretty consistent with the business plan? No, uh, I think it hasn't been consistent with the business plan, and that's part of the fun of being in a startup sure. is that plans keep changing and it attracts people that like to change plans all the time and that are not the hyperly planned people. <laughs> so um, I guess the company was initially doing a lot of services and as I came in as the first manager and coming from a marketing background, because the domain was very much uh, analytics and marketing. So I was like, wow, this is this is a great opportunity. Actually, this solves a great problem for customers. It allows them to understand what their customers are saying. So it allows them to understand the demand curve much better. And it also allows them to understand what the employees are saying. So it allows them to understand the supply curve better. And lo and behold, if you can understand this demand and supply curve better than your competitors, then 
you end up running a better business and not being a commodity and being able to differentiate and having that intelligence. So we ended up productizing a lot of that into building sort of an enterprise great product. Uh, we also had the privilege of onboarding some great customers. We had one Walmart in China, um, a small Australian company winning a large American conglomerate in the largest, one of their largest markets in mm. China really yeah. allowed us to build out capability in multilingual um, platform, being able to understand culturally how, how our customers different across the board and being able to scale. We were getting 10 million transactions a day from Walmart in China, wow. which allowed us to really test out the scale of the platform mm -hmm. and also build coming from a technology background and an engineering background saying we have the chops to be able to do this, to be able to crunch that much data. And so we started dreaming a lot bigger than, you know, we had initially planned out to. So. That, that is amazing. I mean, that, that's a major, major client that you're, that you landed in your portfolio. So when you built your, your business, was it highly dependent on that one client or did you have, was it diversified enough that you could, you know, could stand if they decided to go, you know, elsewhere or how did you kind of navigate that as the CEO? Were you the CEO at the time or? Um, uh, I wasn't the CEO at the time. I, I was during the time. So mm -hmm. I was, I was a product manager and sort of the account manager uh, at the time of winning it. So very good question. So we, um, we had a few of these in our portfolio and we have a few enterprises along and, um, Walmart sort of uh, worked with us. Walmart in China worked with us for three to four years. Jim Thompson, who was the CEO at the time, really um, worked closely with us, allowed them to be more competitive in the market, allowed them to gain insight. But no, we weren't dependent on this account. We very much knew that we were building out. And so we had many accounts um, in the portfolio because we understood that, hey, this is a real, um, we had, and the, and the interesting part was we didn't just have one domain as well because we had financial services clients, we have um, healthcare, and we have retail. And so a very diversified portfolio, which allowed us to see in the early days, I know a lot of people say, go down one domain and really specialize. In the early days, when you work with different domains, although it's harder, it allows you to see for who, which, which industry does it really solve a problem for and which one is it a nice to have? Right. Uh, and, you know, it's a real broad spectrum in the early days because firstly, it's required for survival. I won't walk away from that. But also it's required for you to learn. Like you can't go in with a hypothesis and think that you know everything. So as we started to work very closely with financial services, healthcare, retail, we understood actually their use cases and their cost cases are very different. And although there's a lot of similarity, there is a lot of difference. And um, in terms of how they use this data mm -hmm. and what their business is. So we got a real great insight into many different businesses, which is something I'm very passionate about business. And so I got to work with different CEOs in these industries going, actually, what problem does it solve for you? Because they all have individual problems. Yeah. They're yeah. solving, yeah. And I, I mean, I like the way you kind of, you know, outline how how data has to be interpreted differently in, yeah. in different spheres and different industries and 
And, um, and I, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about just the benefit even to your company of having a diversified portfolio is, you know, your data would tell you different things, you know, based on the client even, you know, and based on yeah, the environment absolutely. that the client operates in. So if yeah. you just had one client, it, it may be, you know, the, the data may be true for that client, but it may be skewed for an industry or, or even just for an econ economic environment as a whole. So yeah, or um, even a country yeah. like we today serve global clients yeah. uh, around the world. That's and good point. You know, culturally, they're very different and their customers are very different. So how a customer right. purchases in Germany is very different to how they purchase in not my customers, but their customers. Yep. And so although it's very difficult for when we onboard someone in the company to understand all this diversity, it's very good for us as founders to really understand hey, there's a real opportunity here. Or actually, we're solving a much bigger problem here than we are in this industry. So yep. which one should we actually push the pedal on? Right. And I mean, actually, you have to understand that as well, because I mean, you're, yes. you're looking for clients in these different countries and they have, Absolutely. and they, they respond to, you know, the sales pitch differently. So Absolutely. speaking of the sales pitch, I, you yes. and I are going to step on a lift right now. We're going to go up 10 floors. You've got yep. 45 seconds to, to tell me exactly what you, your company does. Um, so my company resonate.cx, um, we really allow organizations to get intelligence on why their customers are buying from them, why their customers are not buying from them and which customers are likely to buy more or less from them over time. So what that allows organizations to really do is not just compete on price, but compete on true value that they're delivering that they may not know. So uncovering the value that uh, an organization is delivering to the end customer and then pushing the buttons on that value to ensure that they don't lose value in a very price competitive environment. So how does an organization differentiate? Which segments should they differentiate in? And where should they spend every marketing dollar or every operational dollar mm -hmm. to stay relevant in a very rapidly changing consumer environment? So we really allow organizations to gain competitive advantage at the end of the day and bring insight into that. So looking at your website, I mean, I see a lot of, of reference to NPS or, or net promoter score. Yes. So yeah. is, is this is this built around that particular variable or is, is that just one facet of, of, of really what you're, what you're providing? Um, it is, it is a, it is uh, sort of, that's the genesis of how we started. So a partner at Bain and company who was close to us said, um, actually there's this thing called NPS and you have a very smart technology team. Can you operationalize an NPS program, a net promoter score program for one of Australia's largest retailers. And being the company that we were and the reflex, we go, yeah, we'll give it a go. And they said, can you do it in two weeks? And we're like, yeah, we'll give it a go. And what we realized um, by giving it a go, working so close to these thought leaders was this was going to be big. This was a metric, whatever you may feel about it, that would allow organizations to move away from just doing once a year market research to understanding every transaction and tying it into, did this transaction create loyalty or break loyalty? Did I end up losing a customer because I sold something and I delivered a certain experience? And why did one store in X suburb 
selling the same product um, have a bad experience? And why was one store, one customer happy selling the same product? It wasn't going to be a product game anymore. It wasn't going to be a placement game anymore. It was more moving towards what was a magical experience thing in the middle that we need to now codify. Mm. And so whichever metric you, we, we're a multi-metric system. So whether mm-hmm. you're looking at CSAT, whether you're looking at NPS, customer effort, whatever it may be, tying it into real-time experiences was going to become important. Not just, hey, this is what I feel about American Airlines. No, no. This is what I felt about this flight from this hub to yep. this hub at this time of the day. And this is how I feel as a gold customer. And having that level of intelligence was going to change the game. Wow. That, I mean, I, I, I can, you, you've kind of laid the story. You've actually told the story of the company there. And, and I can literally just picture, you know, just the different approaches you've taken and the different metrics you're trying to measure. And not only that is now you've got to, you've got to, in essence, tell the rest of the story that says, this is how these fit together. This is how these, these, you, I'm going to interpret these for you. So you can actually have, you know, marketable data. You can actually have usable yes. data at the, at the, at the end. Absolutely. But I, so walk us through as the, as a, you know, you've, you've done your own startup, you did your own e-commerce site, you've worked for large companies, you've, you know, multinationals, obviously you, you've done your MBA, you've quit a nice corporate gig where you were, you know, you were probably earning a nice salary. And then you stepped into the CEO role of, of a virtually a tech startup or, or a, you know, a, a kind of a financial tech, fintech, whatever you want to call it. But yeah. so what are, what are two or three lessons that, that you have really learned in this process that, um, that you think every startup founder really needs to know that here's, here's two or three just really essential steps that you've got to do. They're foundational to really get a startup set up on, on solid footing so it has a good, good chance of success. Yeah, uh, and I think two or three are very hard because I learn a lesson a day <laughs> and sometimes there's too many lessons in Just this Just grab world. the big ones. <laughs> so I will talk about the big ones. Um, I think talking to as many people as possible mm. is really important in your target market. I am an engineer. Um, a natural introvert and talking didn't come very easy to me. You know, I was a solution person. I wanted to solve, I wanted to make problems happen, but I learned uh, taking up the role and the responsibility that I have that talking was even more important than finding the solution. Finding the problem was very important. So mm. talking to as many senior leadership people and asking as many questions as you can. And on, this sounds so trivial. It's very hard for people to do, to ask, to walk up to someone and say, is this really a problem in your business? Um, if you could solve this problem, how much is it worth to you? Um, what is the biggest problem? Like, Otherwise, all the effort that you make in making the solution is just a waste. So what has been my biggest learning is questions are king and finding the problem is what most startups get wrong. Um, Finding the solution is the easy part. There's enough smart people to find a solution, but not enough sort of detectives in in the industry that that find the problem. And if you can get to that, you are way ahead uh, of most startups finding the problem, really spending a long time dwelling on, is it really a problem? Is it really, 
what we're looking for. So that's number one, really fall in love with the problem. Um, number two is understanding that it's a very long distance race. Mm. Um, I think that the media has done a really bad job in making everything look like an overnight success. And so I always tell the team about the story of the Chinese bamboo. I'm not sure if you've heard it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you have, but, um, it's, uh, it's really, really important for startups. So the Chinese bamboo is an unusual plant. So when the farmers uh, puts a seed in the ground, they water it and they water it and nothing happens for months. And so they go out and water it and all they see is just dirt there and they keep watering and the one year passes and nothing happens. They go out every day for the second year and keep watering this pile of dirt and they keep watering it and they keep watering it. Year two passes, year three passes and this farmer is so persistent that they just go out and water this piece of dirt every day and there is not a shoot and not a single thing to be seen. Happens in year three, year four, year five. What happens in years, uh, you know, sort of five-ish is that the Chinese bamboo grows 90 feet in sort of five weeks. It's rapid exponential growth. And when you ask someone outside what just happened, they, how long does it take for the Chinese bamboo to grow? And from the external, everyone watching, it's like, it took five weeks to grow 90 foot. <laughs> but it actually took five years and five weeks to exactly. grow 90 foot. And that is a really important story that all the growth in a startup and in very tough environments and those people around you, most of the growth in the Chinese bamboo is happening underground. So it grows the biggest root system of any plant, vicious all around, creating a lot of potential energy to be able to suck up everything and grow like a bamboo in uh, sort of five, five weeks. And that's the story of most great startups. Um, there's a lot of underground growth that happens. And the lesson is that you keep watering it, even though people around you think you're a loony and why are you working so hard? And even your family, you know, my, my, you know, close family sometimes thinks has thought that this is, this is crazy. The amount of hours and work you put into something that hasn't seen the rapid growth that it should have seen at times. Mm -hmm. But most of the growth is happening underground, uninvisible. And you really have to have that faith that something is growing. And um, it will shoot up at some point if you keep persisting to water the plant. Right. Yeah. So have you had your, your uh, five, you've had your five year period. Have you had your five month period yet? Um, look, we, we have, and then Corona has joined <laughs> us in, in the brand wagon of that. So the last one year has been phenomenal for the company uh -huh. and its growth. And um, it's, uh, and what it has done for all of us is as bamboo farmers allowed us to have a lot of belief in what we had done over the last five years is really starting to show. Yep. And, and you know, that, that belief is going to be tested if not more than ever right now in right. this environment for right. a lot of startups. Yep. I, I mean, what a way to kind of wrap up our chat today, because that's exactly the, the, the question that I kind of wanted to touch on was, um, you know, as I'm as I'm looking at this, I think there's a there's a little bit of a uh, temptation to almost see this as a luxury good in business versus a necessity. Yes. And so, how how are you positioning your your company? If if you know if you've got a CEO that's out there going, okay, what can we cut? You know, 
what's the first thing that we can cut? Like we're going to cut our consultants. We're going to cut this. We're going to cut this. We're going to cut this. I mean, yeah. how are you kind of net trying to set, you know, your, your company up to navigate that? And I mean, is that, is that a fair depiction of, of where you kind of fit in the ecosystem? Um, look, I think our relationships with a lot of the people that we work with, the fact that we work with a lot of senior leadership, and we are a tool that is used by CEOs. We see mm. CEOs log into a tech platform, which is, you know, phenomenal in yep. the given time frame. So it's a very important strategic piece. Um, coming back to my fundamental, it's not a time to go and preach to really senior people um, and leaders because I empathize with them that you need this, you want this. It's a time to go and listen and talk and go actually. What is the number one problem? How can data help you get more insight? Because the consumer is consumer needs are changing right now in this rapid environment like no one's Absolutely. Absolutely. And we and haven't so, seen what the change is going to be either. Yeah. And so to stay on top of what the consumer wants fast enough are the companies that are going to survive this. So yeah. from our perspective, it's absolutely essential. And that's not because I'm biased towards it to actually understand your consumer at this point more than any other point. Um, because everything that you, every hypothesis that you had uh, pre-March has just, is going to be questioned. Mm -hmm, and so sure. if you're sitting in a room making a hypothesis now that this is what I think the market wants, it's a very scary place to be. So you want to be working with the data you have. If you have systems in place that give you leading indicators, then you want to be reading them really sharply at this point yep. and not working through lagging indicators. So uh, in our conversations right now, they absolutely a strategic leading indicator and they want to know what customers are feeling, not feeling and how to pivot their own particular businesses in the right way. So it's, it's really a crucial moment for them, for us to be, they're reaching out to us to provide more insight, more rapid insight so they can make some big business decisions right now. I, I think that uh, Resonate Solutions is very, very fortunate to have you as CEO because, I mean, just your vision that you've been cast just in the last minute about this whole idea that, that I'm not here to try to sell you to make sure you keep our service around. It's yep. I am trying to help you navigate this that you know, don't look at the lagging indicators, look at the leading indicators because they're the one that that's what's telling you what's happening now. Because yes. you can't trust the lacking because you can't look back and know how to navigate moving forward. So yes, I love the way you frame that. This, so. is, this is sort of your navigation system on a plane that's lost all its engines and maybe a tail <laughs> and you need to land it now and you don't yeah. want to lose a navigation system right yeah. now. But yeah. all, all you want to know is where that airport is ahead of you. Yeah, <laughs> You don't care where you took and, off. And what the passengers are feeling, you know, from an employee perspective and where the yeah. airports are and where the opportunity is because although everyone is going through a moment of seeing a loss of opportunity, there's going to be a lot of opportunities ahead. Yeah. I, uh, I cannot wait to, uh, you know, circle back with you in, in six to 12 months and just see exactly the way you've kind of navigated this, this difficulty. And I, I would love to be, you know, working side by side with you because you really have cast a, a great vision in this time of, of real uncertainty. And it's just really good to hear. And, and uh, you know, I, I have no vested interest in your company at all, but I, I am, I just want to applaud the way that you are seeing this time and the way that you're trying to navigate through this. So 
I appreciate your, your, the encouragement that, that other listeners would take and, and the other founders that are listening to this will, will take in this difficult time. And just thank you again for just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Mina, thank you for joining thank us today. So thank you so much. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.